I started something last week, a sermon before the sermon. And so I'm going to continue that. Um, I, I feel like I want to take whatever shepherding opportunity I have um, with you. And so last week we started just briefly talking about how to listen to an expository sermon. And so I gave you a definition, and I'm just going to give some little lessons, but here's our definition of an expository sermon, because some of you understand this and some of you don't, and so we want to bring everyone along in the Lord. But an expository sermon is a message from a man of God which proclaims the Scriptures and applies the Scriptures to the glory of God and to produce Christ-likeness in you. That's an expository sermon. And so we started some little lessons in no particular order. The first lesson was come with a disciple's attitude. You come with the expectation to engage your mind. The second lesson was don't waste the end of a message by checking out mentally. Don't waste that last three minutes in which we're really tying the final knot on this message. So lesson number three. Remember that the authority of the word outranks feeling led. Remember that the authority of the word outranks feeling led. I grew up in a, in a tradition where every Christian talked about, I feel led to do this or do that. That was the basis of authority, was a feeling and a decision very often made emotionally. James 1.22 is very familiar to us and it tells us to be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And he goes on to say that the word of God is like a mirror which shows you what you're actually like. But often lost in the context of this admonition is the exhortation in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That is not an admonition to generally speaking control your temper. It is specifically how to receive the preached word. To be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. In the very next verse, James says, Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The preached word will often and should go completely contrary to how you feel. It should go against that. And yes, we are led by the Spirit of God, but this is not the idea that the Spirit leads me as to whether to obey the Scriptures or not to obey the Scriptures. The Spirit is always leading in that direction. It's not always comfortable. The Spirit of God primarily leads through the Word. And so come with the idea that the authority of the Word trumps how you feel. Here's a fourth lesson. Preaching should engage you with the body of Christ, not disengage you from the body of Christ. Preaching should engage you with the body of Christ, not disengage you. Preaching is not a spectator event in which you come and you listen and you evaluate and you judge and you walk away. Preaching is meant to draw you into the body, to be serving, to be dedicated, to be loving, to be a participating member Now, the preached word is the central focus of our worship. What is a basic difference, for example, between a a Catholic church and a Protestant church? You walk into a Catholic church and the primary feature is the altar. You walk into a Protestant church and the primary feature is the pulpit. Because the word of God proclaimed draws you into the body of Christ. Acts 2.42, we see this connection here. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the preached word and to the fellowship. You're built, you're designed, you're commanded to be a part, an integral part, a loving part, a relating part 
of the local church. And we do this by gathering together around the fire of the word of God and then joining to one another based on that experience. In fact, even here at Grace Bible Church, I've overheard people asking somebody, when did you arrive? And they'll say, I arrived in Colossians chapter two. That's how we ought to be thinking. One more lesson, a fifth lesson. Come to the preached word with a spirit of need. Come to the preached word with a spirit of need. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul and his company are in Troas, the church gathered on the Lord's day to worship and Paul preached until midnight. And they lit lamps and they listened and they listened and they listened. Paul took a short break to raise a young man from the dead who fell out of the window because he fell asleep. And then Paul preached until morning. Somebody asked me the other day, what do you want for your 10th anniversary at Grace Bible Church? You know what I want? I want an eight hour long worship service. That's what I want. That, brothers and sisters, is a need for the preached word to preach until midnight and then all night long. What's the opposite of that? It is to come with a spirit of bitterness and haughtiness. And by the way, that creeps in on you unaware. And I've said this very often, I can see when it happens because you started off in the front and now you're sitting farther back, kind of like this. Sorry for all of you in the back. I don't mean to denigrate your character, but I've seen it. I've seen it. An expository sermon is the product of dozens of hours and decades of study. Don't think that in 15 seconds you're going to come to a more accurate assessment. And so come with a spirit of need. Come with a spirit of humility. Solomon had one message for his son. He said, my son, fear the Lord. The scripture only records that King Solomon had one son and two daughters. If he had others, they're lost to history. This is ironic considering that Solomon had more wives than anybody in history. But scripture records three children. And to this one son, Rehoboam, Solomon wrote in Proverbs 24, 21, My son, fear the Lord. And this is a continual theme of Solomon's. He says it all throughout Proverbs. Proverbs 3, verse 7, Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. In fact, the phrase fear of the Lord is used 19 times in Proverbs. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 7, that God is the one you must fear. And then at the very end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon gives his conclusion about life and he says this, the end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. And this really constitutes the the highest, the loftiest, the grandest, the, the most exalted calling of a father and of a mother and that is to call your children to fear God. And one of the ways we're commanded to call our children to fear God is first teach them to fear you. And yes, we speak of fear in the sense of respect, but we also speak of fear in the sense of not wanting to receive the negative consequences for sin. And so that leads us to today's focus in our mini-series, Parenting for God's Glory. We've been using Ephesians chapter 6 as our home base. Turn with me to Ephesians 6 if you're not there already. This is Paul's compact but packed set of commands for believers who desire to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to Christ in their homes, in their families. And we've seen in, in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, there are two commands to children and two commands to parents. 
The two commands to children are to obey your parents and to honor your parents. And the two commands to parents, do not provoke your children to anger and bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And just to get us back up to speed, we've been going through just basic principles of parenting for God's glory. We saw the principle of heart motivation. Verse 1, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. This is speaking to believing children. We saw, secondly, the principle of respectful submission. Honor your father and mother. We saw the principle of natural outcomes. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And we saw the principle of gracious relationship. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. So that brings us today to the principle of consistent consequences. The principle of consistent consequences but bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. And so I want to very simply address three questions this morning. What is the discipline of the Lord? How do we discipline our children in the Lord? And why do we discipline them in the Lord? What and how and why? So first, what is the discipline of the Lord? Now this word here, discipline, it's a word that has very broad connotations. It can simply mean to instruct, but it also has overtones of correction and reprimand and even insistence. And since Paul makes a distinction here, and it may be a gray area distinction, but he does make a distinction nonetheless between discipline and instruction, we typically focus on discipline as the correcting side of unwanted behaviors and attitudes and words. And as we'll see in Proverbs in just a few minutes, this, this implies not just verbal correction, but it also implies consequences, negative, painful consequences for sinful rebellion. But we have to answer a grammatical question here. What is the discipline of the Lord? Now, you'll notice the, the prepositional phrase here, of the Lord, it modifies both instruction and discipline. But discipline has to do with the overall training of a child, including punishment. And so the phrase of the Lord helps us specify what discipline we're talking about. And it's very, very important here that Paul put that phrase in. Because if he said simply discipline your children, period, what do we say? Great, I can do it however I want. But he says discipline of the Lord, It describes the discipline. Now, it can have a couple of different nuances, and we have to explore this and see which direction we need to go. First of all, it could mean grammatically that this is discipline that's authorized by or in the place of or given by the Lord. That the parent stands in the place of God and is the authority in the home as if he is God himself, that the child is to obey and honor. And we do see that concept elsewhere in Scripture. We see Paul's admonition, for example, to wives in the previous chapter, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. It's not that the husband is God, but it's the husband stands in the place of God in the home in honor. And so it is for the children. These four verses here that that we see in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, they're written not only to parents, but to believing children as well. That God himself has ordained that discipline is received from parents and it's of the Lord. The parents are working on God's behalf to produce obedience, to produce character. As a matter of fact, Solomon tells his son, ostensibly speaking of the father's discipline to the son, he says in Proverbs 3, verse 11, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline 
or be weary of his reproof. In other words, when I discipline you, that is the Lord's discipline. Now, this view of of the Lord, it really concerns the fact that parents stand in the place of of God, and that's legitimate. It agrees with other scriptures on the subject, but I don't think it really answers the question, what is the discipline of the Lord? The phrase can be taken, and I think it's more precise to take it this way, as a phrase giving the characteristics or the attributes of the noun that it's modifying. In other words, of the Lord tells us what the properties of discipline are. What does discipline look like? What is it about? And now we start to make some headway. The discipline of our children is to be in the sphere of, in the area of what's given by and what's prescribed by the Lord. Now, how do we know what's prescribed by the Lord? We have one and one only source of spiritual authority, and that is the word of God. And so what are we saying here? It means that the discipline of the Lord is derived from what we find in Scripture. And so broadly speaking, what is the discipline of the Lord? Let me divide this down into about four different categories here. First, discipline is derived from Scripture. It's discipline derived from Scripture. The Bible is our only source of spiritual authority, so all discipline of children is derived from the Bible, not from external external ideas now we're not just talking about methods or techniques that's the easy way out we don't have a list of one two threes just do this and you'll have perfect kids we're talking about the character traits that we're trying to engender in our children a parent might say for example i'm trying to engender an independent spirit in my child okay that's fine where do you find that in scripture you wouldn't find that there In other words, basically speaking, God is trying to get you to do in your children's life through Scripture what he's trying to do in your life through Scripture. It's the same thing, the same sanctifying process. There's a second piece to the discipline of the Lord here. It's discipline helped by the Holy Spirit. It's discipline helped by the Holy Spirit. No two two children are alike. In fact, ask parents of even identical twins and they'll say that, that there's lots of similarities, obviously, but different sin patterns begin to emerge in these twins. Every child has his own quirks and sensitivities. And I think for me personally, just to be vulnerable, I think the biggest mistakes I've made as a dad is not considering the individual needs of, of a, a particular child. How we need the Holy Spirit how we need to be driven to our knees to pray for personal sanctification, for wisdom, for help, for for understanding. The saying is true that a parent prayed for the sanctification of his child and God answered that prayer by having that child grow up and have children. And that sanctified the child. And all at the same time, we hold in our hand a word from God that is clear as a bell on our duties as parents And at the same time, we stand helpless and we always have to rely on the Holy Spirit because we never seem to to have the right answer when we need to. Children will always surprise you with things you didn't expect. For example, your second child has a temper tantrum when she doesn't get her way. And in her case, it just seems to be simple selfishness and just straight up rebellion. The third child has temper tantrums and While they are sinful, they're rooted more in fearfulness of losing something valuable. And maybe comfort and closeness is more appropriate than just pure punishment. 
It takes help from the Holy Spirit. It takes knowing your children. It takes pleading for God to help. Words like nuance, tones, degrees, shades. These are all words that ought to enter into our thinking. The discipline of the Lord speaks of what would the Lord have me do? What would the Holy Spirit have me do? It's a third piece to this discipline of the Lord. Discipline derived from Scripture, discipline helped by the Holy Spirit. The third piece we might call discipline pointing to the gospel. Discipline pointing to the gospel. You are doing the work of subduing the will that the Holy Spirit does in regeneration. Now, it's not that you can somehow make your child easier to save. It's not that you tell the Lord, here, I've prepared him for you. He'll be easier to get into heaven now. But it's so that you can let your child experience submission to authority such that submission to God won't be a foreign concept. Your discipline is connected to obedience to the Lord, not so much that an unbelieving child somehow makes God happy by his, his obedience, that's not the case, but that you're modeling and demonstrating over and over and over again that in submission is found true joy and peace. Then it's an easy bridge to, you've submitted to your father, you've submitted to your mother, now submit to the Lord. Ultimately, becoming a Christian from a human standpoint is a matter of one thing, and that is Submission. Three times the New Testament speaks of obeying the gospel, not just understanding the gospel, not just believing the gospel, obedience to the gospel. Salvation isn't a partnership with God, it's full submission unto God. So your discipline is pointing to the need for salvation. Then there's a fourth piece to the discipline of the Lord we might point to, and that is discipline explaining God's nature. Discipline explaining God's nature. Listen, true biblical faith flourishes when we're reminded of God's graciousness and God's gravity. In God's great proclamation of his own glory to Moses found in Exodus 34, listen to God's own description of himself and I'll just do it in the form of a list. There's two lists. There's the gracious list and the gravity list. Here's the gracious list. He is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But then there's the gravity list. God who will by no means clear the guilty and he visits the sins, the consequences of sin, generations down from a rebellious man. And this ought to be you. And if as a parent, if you're merciful, gracious, slow to anger, steadfast in love, faithful, forgiving, but you won't ignore rebellion, you won't ignore sin, that there will be consequences when deemed appropriate, now you're exercising discipline derived in Scripture, helped by the Holy Spirit, pointing to the gospel and explaining God's nature. You're explaining his nature by your actions. So we've looked at the question, what is the discipline of the Lord? It is discipline derived from the authority of Scripture, derived from God. But how do we discipline our children? How do we correct? Now, in Ephesians 6, 4, the instruction of the Lord that's spoken of, it it implies verbal correction, the instruction and teaching and admonition. The discipline side is more the consequences which occur as a result of, of rebellion. And so to help us understand how we discipline the Lord, we want to go to Proverbs chapter 19. If you would go with me there, we're going to take a little tour through what we might call the child-rearing hall of fame. 
to some familiar verses that give basic instruction regarding providing consequences. Now, as you're turning to Proverbs 19, let me remind you of the order in which Paul presented his commands to parents. The first command, do not provoke your children to anger. That's the first one. Then the second command, bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. And this is tempered and balanced with instruction. And I say this up front because to solely focus on discipline, the correction, the chastising, is wrong and we could even characterize it as emotionally abusive to children because it's not in the context of a loving, committed relationship. Let me put it to you this way. If the first thought about your own parenting is the phrase, well, in my day, then you probably need to take a time out and hold on to your evaluation and just cool off a little bit. Because parenting is not just about discipline and correction. That's part of it. Let's just peruse a few classic Proverbs and talk about discipline. Proverbs 18, or 19 rather, verse 18. Solomon says, Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Discipline can mean to instruct, to chastise, to punish, to rebuke. And what's the spirit behind this chastisement? It is to give hope of a longer life. And remember, we looked at the quality of life and the quantity of life back in Ephesians 6.3. This particular proverb doesn't specify a method of chastisement. It just says, do something that will correct and send a message that helps a child alter course. Let's look at another classic, Proverbs 22, verse 15. Proverbs 22, verse 15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Foolishness, folly, it's bound up. It's a word that means it's tied together. It's conspiring together in the heart of a child. What is this folly? Well, there's three nuances to this. I think we need to explore all three all three of them to understand the, the full depth of what Solomon is saying here. First of all, the first nuance It's just the normal use of the word folly. That your child has no innate sense of judgment. They can't judge anything. The younger the child, the less judgment they have. That's why you keep little ones right by your side. In our family, when children were very little, we had a game where they had to hold on to my finger and I held their hand. It was was them being obedient and me being the, the one in charge because they don't have any wisdom. That's why a family's, a child's place in this family is to be guarded, and we expose a child to wisdom slowly over time as he's able to to receive it? And what is it that drives that foolishness, that little baby childishness from them? It is the rod, the physical chastisement which overcomes the child's inability to reason and think. Did you hear that? It is that which overcomes a child's inability to reason and think. Let me put it to you this way. A three-year-old is not going to say to himself, I'm not going to run out into the street because the inertia of a moving vehicle far outweighs my ability to withstand an impact. Nope. A three-year-old is going to say to himself, the last time, three times I tried to run out into the street, my daddy walloped my rear end and I'm not going to do that again. He doesn't have to reason. He's protected by virtue of the discipline. There's a second sense to folly and that is of the sin nature of a child. The sin nature of a child. Yes, some of the naivete of a child is cute, but a lot of it is bound up in the sin nature that is inherited from Adam in that they are naturally selfish. 
And so discipline drives that selfishness from them. Even very small children, 12, 14, 16-month-olds, can positively, positively respond to, a, to a, a swat on the hand or a spank on the bottom when you've said no, and they continue anyway. They get it. They can understand that message. But there's a third sense to folly, and this is related to the fool of Proverbs, which most of the time is speaking of an unbeliever who refuses the counsel of the godly. Who refuses the counsel of the wise? So the wise. So to drive folly from a child, from the human perspective, is to drive them away from that tendency to eventually completely rebel and totally regard disregard all godly counsel. It is to drive that from them. And so because of this folly that's bound up in the heart of a child, the rod of discipline drives it from him. But what is the rod of discipline? Well, first, we have to address a common interpretation of the rod. Now, I've already given away my position, but to be fair, I want to examine a different view, and you can make your own decision. Look with me at the next chapter, Proverbs 23, beginning in verse 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Now, before we look at this common interpretation and critique it, we have to establish and agree that there is a singular source of spiritual authority, and that authority is the Word of God. There is no other authority for us. Secular psychology, secular sociology, even family law does not trump what the Word of God says. So whatever the Word of the Lord says is the final authority, that is the final authority, regardless of what unbelievers would say. Now, I think most evangelicals can get together and get behind the idea that liberal unbelievers telling us how to raise our children is a bad idea, that that's ridiculous. They have no wisdom to offer. It's man's wisdom. So that's easy. But what about those claiming to believe the authority of Scripture and claiming to be in Christ, using Scripture to agree with the culture? What do we do then? Now we have to look a little more carefully. The interpretation which is common and popular concerning the rod goes something like this. The rod is a Hebrew word which can mean a stick for walking. It can mean a stick for riding, for fighting, for ruling, for punishment. But the poetic meaning in Proverbs is that it simply is talking about accountability. It's the rod of ruling, that you're providing accountability. It's like a ruler's staff, so to speak, and it does not refer to spanking the child. One proponent of this argument is a man named Thomas Heller. His website subtitles him, quote, parenting and relationship expert, unquote. And I want to use his information as a guide for us. Because he professes in his own words, quote, that the grace of God is best seen through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He professes to be a believer in Christ. I have no reason to doubt that at all. I want to examine Haller's view, though, because he openly puts himself out as a nationwide expert on parenting. He holds a Master of Divinity degree, and he appears regularly on a local uh, news channel on a segment called Family Matters. And he wrote an article which I think really quite fairly and carefully presents that view of the rod as giving accountability, not spanking. It's an article called Biblical Perspectives on Spanking. 
In the article, he establishes credential, his credentials. He says, quote, As an ordained minister, I spent eight years learning the Hebrew and Greek language so as to study the Bible in its original language. That's good. That's a good starting place. He argues then that the word for rod, Shabbat, can be used to mean, and I'm quoting him now, a stick for walking, writing, fighting, ruling, and punishment. The word Shabbat is most frequently used when referring to shepherds who are tending their flocks. The shepherds use the stick to fight off prey and to gently guide wandering sheep not to beat them. And he goes on to say that because Proverbs is a book of poetry, the writers use familiar words to represent larger concepts. In other words, the rod is really referring to a more abstract concept. And in Haller's case, he takes it as accountability. He suggests reading Proverbs 22:15 for example as quote folly is bound up in the heart of a child but holding him accountable will drive it far from him. And his conclusion is is that the Bible quote the Bible simply does not support spanking. Now he suggests and this is a very good and a right suggestion that parents are to create a culture of accountability in their home. That is true. That is right. But what is his reason for saying the Bible does not support spanking? He says, quote, in the New Testament, Jesus modified the Old Testament by providing us a model of gentleness and love. So that's the other view. Now, what are we to believe about the rod? Well, respectfully to Mr. Haller, I would have to disagree for five reasons. First of all, regarding his statement that, quote, Jesus modified the Old Testament, unquote, I wonder how that would stand up to Jesus' own statement in Luke 16, verse 17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Yes, we are under the new covenant. We are not under the Mosaic covenant, but to say that Jesus modified the Old Testament is a grave hermeneutical error And it suggests somehow that the law of Moses was bad. The Bible never says the law was bad. As a matter of fact, Haller says that passages such as Exodus 21.15, in which Israel mandated the execution of rebellious older children, are, quote, too harsh by today's standards. What does that imply and why is that dangerous? It implies that today, meaning our culture, determines biblical ethics and that God was too harsh in the Old Testament. And so Jesus toned God down in the New Testament, that Jesus was somehow the press secretary for God to spin something that God regrets saying. That has massive implications for the inerrancy of Scripture, and frankly, it pits Jesus against God. It also shows a complete misunderstanding of the covenants in Scripture that Israel was under a particular covenant with God which included the possible execution of rebellious teenagers. By the way, there were 18 other reasons you could be executed under the Mosaic Covenant. We're under a new covenant. It does not include those things, but it doesn't invalidate the principles behind the law. And so to say Jesus modified the Old Testament, you cannot use that to just carte blanche invalidate proverbs so second reason very respectfully as a man with the same training as mr haller his assertion that shabbat can mean many different things and thus cannot mean a rod is a classic lexical word study error that some called a semantic domain mistake what does this mean 
It is absolutely true that Hebrew word definitions help us enrich our understanding of the words, but words are used in context and they even change over time. And so the error in play here is that taking every possible definition and just cherry-picking the one I like, that's a classic error. And frankly, if I were him, I would remove that statement in his website that says how well-trained he is. Because that's like a first-year seminary mistake. There's a third reason I would disagree with him. Context is our biggest determiner in establishing correct word meaning. It's not just a dictionary, it's the context. And in fact, this is much more important than just dictionary definitions. Look with me at Proverbs 23, 13 and 14 again. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Now listen to Haller's translation. And I'm quoting him. Quote, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you create a culture of accountability, he will not die. Create accountability and save his soul from death. Now wait just a minute. When you do a translation, you don't get to just leave words out. And he left out a Hebrew word, taken. It is never translated create a culture of. It's a word, and here's the semantic domain of everything that it can possibly mean. Smite, hit, batter, ruin, destroy, strike, attack, slay. Period. It never means create a culture of. And the idea of create a culture of accountability, he will not die, that makes no sense. Strike him with a rod and he will not die. That makes sense because that's an admonition to controlled discipline that is not abusive, that is corrective and loving. Let me give you a fourth reason. This one's easy. Historical context. Ancient Israelites spanked their kids. Why? Because Proverbs told them to. You ask an ancient Israelite, what's a rod? He say, well, it depends on which tree you go to. You know, there's this one over here. You can cut it this big or if he's really bad, cut it this big. It's a stick. They were not to harm or to hurt a child. They were to cherish them. They were to love them. As a matter of fact, the Talmud, which is commentary on the law of Moses, it taught that a father who strikes an older child was to be excommunicated from the nation. And that makes sense. Why? Because that could set up an older child to retaliate and put that child in danger of breaking the law against dishonoring your parents. That spanking was meant for the very little children. But they did spank their children. I'll give you one more reason. This is the easiest of all. Bible translated, translations that have translated Shabbat as rod. New American Standard, English Standard Version, Holman Christian Standard, New International Version, King James Version, Revised Standard Version, just to name a few. I couldn't find a single English translation that didn't translate it rod except one. The New Century Version, if you spank them, they won't die. I'll take that. That'll be okay. How many translations have translated Shabbat accountability? Zero. So what does it mean to correct a child with a rod? Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. The implication of spanking is that it is not a reminder swat. As a matter of fact, that's disrespectful to a child because now you're not disciplining, you're just frustrating them. The implication, the reason the parent is being told that the child won't die is because the discipline hurts. It's painful. If it doesn't hurt, the child will mock you. 
He will see you as weak and he will be angry. The spanking is meant to lead to repentance. What was God's pattern with Israel in the book of Judges? What was his pattern? They would rebel. God would spank them using a foreign nation. They would repent. But then they would rebel again, so God would spank them again, over and over and over again. Spanking is much, much kinder than allowing rebellion to go unchecked. I, that's, a, that's what we might even call that spiritual abuse. To say, I'm going to let my child do whatever they want for the sake of their own independent spirit. In other words, I'm just going to nail down their sin nature and confirm it as valid. Now, we don't spank for weaknesses. We don't spank for personality differences. We don't spank for developmental issues. We don't spank a child for spilling his juice. That's cruel. Now, if a child starts misusing his cup, you tell him to stop, and he looks you right in the eye, takes his juice, and goes like that. What happens now? He shouldn't be able to sit down for 11 minutes. That's in the Bible. Listen, children are natural-born gamblers. They are born with a roulette wheel in one hand and a pair of dice in the other. And if you only spank him 50% of the time, they're going to roll the dice. They're going to take the risk. How old is too old to spank? After they turn 32, you have to stop. (laughs) Every child is different, but generally speaking, the child who is unable to reason is the best candidate. Or spanking. Eventually, if you keep spanking older children, they're just going to feel mistreated, and it probably means you're not taking enough control over other aspects of their lives in order to negatively impact other things. We've already talked about discipline employing natural consequences. We did that on another day. You have to judge every individual child. You have to work more and more away from punishment and more toward relationship. Here's a good rule of thumb. The more consistent you are when they are small, the faster you can dispense with spanking. You're constantly giving this choice. Do what I say because it pleases God and pleases me or don't and hear the consequences and be consistent. Yes, there will be battles. There will be wars. There will be times when you give a spanking and chastisement and ask if they're sorry and the child will turn to you and just go like that. What do you do? You turn them over and you give them another chance to repent. That's what you do. The Bible calls that turning the other cheek. (laughs) It's in the Bible. Listen, do not let a child get away with an attitude. If you back off then, you just said your sin nature is stronger than my ability to correct you. You must continue to chastise until they are broken. If you don't do that, you will create angry, angry children. If you will do that, you will create children who love you for taking them all the way to the point of repentance. Even with small children, there should be restitution. This is part of repentance. If a child won't stop being wild at the table, then not only does he get spanked, but he also gets to go back to the table and practice sitting still to undo all the time that he wasted making you deal with him. There should be restitution as well. The proverb we just read gives a contrast. Spank your children. Not only will they not die, but they'll be saved from the grave, saved from Sheol. You're helping them. You're helping them. Let's look at another one. Proverbs 29, verse 15. 
Another classic in the hall of fame here of discipline. Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but the child left to himself brings shame to his mother. What is it you're imparting? This isn't abuse. You're imparting wisdom. You're imparting, if I could put it this way, your values are being now internalized with this child before they're even able to reason. The rod and reproof, this is parallel to the discipline and instruction of the Lord from Ephesians 6. Listen, our culture has taught us to be afraid to inflict pain on our children. But the Bible has a couple of stern warnings to parents that if you will not inflict pain on your children, then you're turning them into people who have nothing but trouble and nothing but pain to offer everyone around them, starting with their own mothers. Let me give you the first example. You don't have to turn here. Just listen. First Samuel chapter 3. Samuel is a little boy and he's living with old Eli the priest whose sons were priests as well. And Samuel, the boy prophet, he receives his very first word from the Lord. And how sad is this? It was about Eli, the man who was raising him. And this is the word from the Lord in 1 Samuel 3 verse 13. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, listen to this, because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Eli had not disciplined his sons and as a result, they turned into the most vile, wicked priests that Israel had ever seen until the day that Christ would be born. The second example, King David, he had 19 sons listed in scripture. His fourth son, Adonijah, was a rebellious son and scripture blames David. When David was old and basically bedridden, his intent was to pass the throne to his 10th son, Solomon, but Adonijah had other plans. 1 Kings 1, verse 5, Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. He's making a run for the throne before his little 20-year-old brother Solomon can get it. And why did he do this? Yes, it is true. Some of our children will end up as rebels despite your best efforts. But the next verse immortalizes the cause of Adonijah's rebellion. 1 Kings 1, 6, his father, David, had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? Displease, it means to hurt, to pain, to grieve, to rebuke. David had never initiated conflict with his son. Listen, spanking is quick. It relieves a child of guilt because atonement has been made. The relationship is immediately restored. The the mild pain now, which goes away in seconds, will save massive pain later, which may not go away for a lifetime. So done in the context of love and instruction that provides peace, it provides liberation to a child who is enslaved by his own sin. This has happened in my family. This has happened in families that I know of where a child will actually say thank you for discipline because it relieves them of guilt. It cleanses their conscience and atones for their sin from a family standpoint. Well, let's answer one final question. Why do we discipline? Why do we discipline? The short answer is we discipline for the glory of God That's the theme of this series, that we parent 
not first for results, but first in order to please the Lord, leaving the results to his sovereign care. But to delve more deeply into why we discipline, we can take our cue from our Heavenly Father and how he disciplines us. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12 with me. Hebrews chapter 12. Now this chapter begins by exhorting the believer in Christ to be faithful as the great men and women of Hebrews 11 were examples for us. And and we show this faithfulness by laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and running with endurance the race that is set before us. It's a race of sanctification. It's a race of obedience. And one in which God has guaranteed in Romans chapter 8 will end with us being made completely in the image of Christ. We won't attain that in this life, but we will strive for it in this life. One of the most amusing parts at uh, Shepherd's Conference this past week was uh, Dr. MacArthur said that he tells his congregation that if he doesn't recognize you in heaven, it means that you're now like Christ and your earthly life bore no resemblance to Christ and you have to reintroduce yourself. But here in Hebrews 12, we can quickly catalog five reasons God the Father disciplines us. And we'll just list them briefly. Five reasons God the Father disciplines us. Number one, to love us toward Christ-likeness. To love us toward Christ-likeness. Look with me at verse five. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He's pushing us to to Christ-likeness. He's pushing us to be more and more like his son. Now, by the way, this answers the question, which believers does God discipline? Well, the answer is all of them, the ones that he loves. We never point a finger at another believer and say, ha, you must be under the discipline of the Lord. And you, you could be snarky and you could ask, are you under the discipline of the Lord? Well, no, I'm not. Well, then you must not be a Christian because God only disciplines those whom he loves. And answers that question. The greatest gift God gives is salvation. And what's the end result? What's the end game? The end result is to be like Christ. That's our reward. This is what Paul says is the goal and the burden and the aim of the faithful pastor. Paul said in Galatians 4.19 that he is in anguish for the church, quote, until Christ is formed in you. This is a painful process at times. Very rarely does the Christian say, I feel so good being made like Christ all the time. It hurts to love us toward Christ-likeness. Here's a second reason that God the Father disciplines us, to prove we belong to him to prove that we belong to him. The end of verse six says he chastises every son whom he receives. Discipline includes what God teaches us and it also includes the pains that he allows us to endure. Every pain is a lesson if you'll take it that way. And these pains and trials allow us to rejoice with the Apostle Peter, as he said in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It proves we belong to him. Are you as a Christian seeming to have a lousy life? Rejoice, you belong to Christ. Here's a third reason God the Father disciplines us to enjoy the favor of God. To enjoy the favor of God. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all are participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? The discipline of the Lord imparts to us this great honor that God is treating you as his child. And there's favor in that. When my child needs discipline, I show my love and my concern for the children who bear my name. And ultimately, they understand that this proves they're part of the family. There's a fourth reason God disciplines us. To teach the greatest joy. To teach the greatest joy. Look at verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. That's a stunning statement. The fact that God is holy and he is doing something first through Christ and now through our progressive sanctification to share in his holiness. Our greatest joy is to be made like God, to be made holy, to be made pure. I suspect that one of the first things we'll do in heaven is to simply take about a year-long deep breath of what it feels like to be made holy without sin. And there's a final reason that God disciplines us, to make us enjoy life. To make us enjoy life, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Listen, it is unrighteous behavior which causes the worst anguish in your life. I want to say 70, 80, 90% of the time when I see somebody in counseling for pain and anguish they're in, often it is self-inflicted pain. But the loving discipline of the Lord purifies and cleanses and keeps us from causing ourselves self-inflicted pain. And so this is to a lesser degree and in human terms why we discipline. We discipline first to love children toward Christ-likeness. Listen, you can teach Christ-likeness to children long before they come to faith in Christ. They don't have the Spirit of God. They have parents which do the same thing as the Spirit in many ways. And when by God's grace they are regenerated, they'll grow in their faith quickly because they're not exploring new territory. Second reason we discipline, to prove to your children they belong to you. Discipline says you are mine, I am invested in you. I'm not just giving up on you. I've seen parents of teenagers do this. When they turn 16, 17, 18, they just kind of say, well, let's just coast to the end here. No, that's when you crank it up. That's when you say, I have such little time left to point you in the right direction. The arrow is already headed in the wrong direction and I need to push it to point you correctly. Third, to enjoy your favor. To enjoy family fellowship that isn't tainted by unresolved conflict, unresolved rebellion. Every family has different practices the way they, they come together as a family. In our family, we enjoy coming together many evenings of the week and, and we'll uh, sometimes read the scripture. Often we'll sing songs together. We, we have a stack of hymnals in our house and we'll sing, we'll share with one another, we will pray for one another. But that cannot happen in a context where there are unresolved conflicts. It must happen in a context where favor has been gained. And that happens through discipline. There's a fourth reason we discipline, to teach the greatest joy, holiness. This is our gospel opportunity because we're only made holy through whom? Through Christ. 
And that's our opportunity to share the gospel with our children. And finally, we discipline to make them enjoy life. Undisciplined children become miserable adults because they're inflicting pain on themselves at every turn. So we end where we began that our discipline has one ultimate purpose, one aim to which we're hoping and praying, and it is the admonition of Solomon to his son Rehoboam, my son, fear the Lord. My son, fear the Lord. That is the goal of our discipline. Now, for you who are not parents, or perhaps you're here just visiting, or maybe you've been here a few times, and you think, how does this apply to me? The same thing applies to you. My fellow human being, fear the Lord. Because for you, maybe the problem is not you have unruly kids or that you were an unruly kid. The problem is is that you are right now an unruly creation of God who is not a child of the living God, but you are a child of your father, Satan, the devil. And so my admonition to you would be the same as Solomon's, to fear the Lord. And you express this by asking the Lord Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for your sin that you were to pay to receive the fact that he went to a cross that has your name on it and he went instead. And to humble yourself under the disciplining hand of the Lord because if he continues to to spank and continues to bring difficulties and continues to bring uh, the pains of life into your life and you will not respond by running to the cross and understanding, then he'll bring the ultimate pain. And this isn't a punishment that will end. This is one that will endure forever and ever and ever. And so for you, maybe parenting isn't the issue, but for you, you are an unruly child of the devil who needs to be transformed into an obedient child of the king of kings. That sounds hard, but the beauty of that offer is is that the Lord Jesus Christ himself has said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Our Father, we... Thank you so much for our children. We thank you for our babies. We thank you for those who are little. We thank you for those who are grown. And we would ask you, Lord, I know this is bold. I know this is audacious, but we would ask you that those represented here at Grace Bible Church, that every one of our children would come to faith in Christ, that we would not miss one, and that you would, by the regenerating, transforming work of your Holy Spirit, bring each and every baby to the Lord Jesus. Lord, we think of every parent here. Probably every one of them has a particular child that's a little bit more of a challenge, one that has brought more tears than laughter. And we hurt with them, Lord. And while we can joke and make light at times because it it helps us make it through, we know that many tears are shed in prayer. Many tears are shed on our knees on behalf of our children, particularly as they get older and older and we watch helplessly as they seem to just go the opposite direction that we've taught them. And so we lift them up to you. We lift the parents up to you. We lift the children up to you. Make all right in your time. Lord, I pray for the parents of small children now. I pray that they would use every moment to teach, to discipline, to instruct, to admonish, that they would take this time as precious and not let it pass them by because it will go by in a blink. And I pray for our parents of adult children, Lord, that we would be mentors, that we would be friends, that we would be teachers, that we would come alongside, that we would be counselors to our children, that we would love them in a way that's meaningful to them and that that continues that relationship on and on. 
And again, once again, Lord, we would ask for the salvation of every child represented here. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.